0: Good morning. You could be finding in your Bibles the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. We'll read from there to get started here in just a moment. Uh, Our goal for which we are gathered here is to rejoice together. Uh, And we do this every Sunday together, don't we? We even do it based on the same reason. We gather on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, because this is when our Lord and Savior emerged victorious from the tomb. It's what we mark by our weekly gatherings. Everything that we are thankful for, everything that we praise him for, it's all based on the fact that that morning the tomb was empty. Death was defeated in the resurrection of our Lord. This is what we'll spend the next bit thinking about together. And we want to do that. We want to go to God's word so that our hearts and our minds would be joined together. In worship. We can thank God for the truth of the resurrection to the extent that we see it and understand it as it's been revealed to us. And so this is our task. Uh, The greater we understand it the more we marvel at it. So let's start as I said Luke chapter 23 you can find verse 55. We'll simply begin here by reading and remembering together the news that we're talking about. The news upon which rests our eternal hope, brothers and sisters. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. In returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So now our work together this morning begins, the work to understand this better so that we might rejoice in it more. And to do that, I want to ask you to follow me as we visit three different passages together. Uh, We'll look at each of these because each of them teaches us something in particular about the significance of the empty tomb. The first place we'll go is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So you can now leave Luke and come to 1 Corinthians, keep your hands ready, because we'll move to a few places this morning. 1 Corinthians 5 and find verse 7, and as you're scanning to find verse 7, you might notice that we're sort of uh, awkwardly dropping into the midst of a very personal moment of confrontation there. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about a heinous sin problem in their midst. This is uncomfortable. It's not our purposes this morning to be thinking on That, uh, But what I need you to notice is how he speaks to them about the solution to this problem, and in fact, about the reason for the commands that he gives. In short, notice what he says about your Lord here in verse 7. He says, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's just the first thing that we see here this morning. It's that Jesus, in this death that he died, was the final, what is called Paschal lamb, the final Passover lamb sacrifice. The connection that Paul's making is direct and intentional. And what we find is that this connection is God given. This is a connection intended on the part of the one who commanded the Passover lamb sacrifice in the first place. Long, long ago, before the exodus. This connection should be for us something to marvel at. And I'm thinking even in terms of the level of God's deliberateness in what he has done throughout time to prepare us to see Jesus accurately. We find in our amazement that God has, over the course of thousands of years, showed us this sacrifice showed us his son, Jesus Christ. And in this case, he's shown this to us through the Passover festival that he commanded them to keep. So we can read God's instruction in the Old Testament about the preparation of the Passover sacrifice. And we read things like what's told us in Exodus chapter 12 that they were commanded several days before they killed their family Passover sacrifice They were commanded to take that lamb and bring it into their home with them for several days. From the 10th to the 14th of their month of Nisan, they had chosen their Passover sacrifice. But they don't kill it first. They bring it to live with them in their home for a period of days before the death. And only then, on the evening of the 14th, were they to slaughter the lamb. Now, I bring that up for this reason. Compare that to what we see happen in Jesus' life what we see described to us in John chapter 12, that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem six days before the Passover, it says. And in fact, given the way that days were measured and counted in Jewish culture, and given the timing in their festival of when the Passover lambs were actually killed and eaten and sacrificed, a very persuasive argument is made that Jesus was welcomed into the city of Jerusalem on the very day when the Jews would have been bringing their Passover lambs into their houses. And I just ask you, is it hard to see? Is it obscure what God was putting on display with his timing? Notice, both the timing in his calling Jesus to go then and enter Jerusalem, which as we saw in John, was very deliberate. Jesus waited at points for days until his father bid him to go but also the very way in which he prescribed the Passover to take place. What we find is that on that Palm Sunday, it's a week ago today, they're welcoming Jesus as their coming conquering king. So they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is what they're shouting. But they seem to have no idea that they are bringing into their home into Jerusalem the true passover lamb himself. And Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 5:7 that that true passover lamb did in God's courtroom what the Old Testament types could only ever do typologically in an earthly way. We find them compared for us in Hebrews 9:13. You can just listen to this comparison. He says, "For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You hear the difference? The relationship, but the, the unspeakable superiority of one, over the other, even the fulfillment of one from the other. Jesus atoned for sin by the shedding of his blood. He didn't simply purify the flesh, he accomplished something regarding actual guilt, such that, as the writer of the Hebrews says, our very consciences can be purified by the shed blood of Christ at the cross. So Jesus, in his coming, and even in the particular timing of his coming is living out the motions of the Passover lamb. And it would be backward for us, actually, to say that he was doing that metaphorically to, to represent the Passover that God had instituted. That would be exactly the opposite, wouldn't it? Because it's all the other lambs who were the metaphors. They were the metaphors for this. They were the pictures. Pointing to this. They were the shadows and types, as Paul writes, of this. He is the Passover lamb. The real one. And in that way then, what is the cross? The cross is the place where the true Passover lamb is slain. Where sin is truly atoned for. For all those to whom this blood is applied. So, this is the first truth that we remember together this morning. It's that the crucifixion was the slaughtering of the true, the final Passover lamb. And what that means for you and for me this morning is that at the cross, an actual payment for sin was being offered to God. And I hope that you know well this morning, the question uh, that our eternal future hangs upon is the question of whether or not that payment for sin was accepted. And that leads us to the second text that we need to consider together, which is Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Start reading at verse 30. And here now, we're bringing our minds from the crucifixion. We were focusing very deliberately on Friday together on the crucifixion. Here now, we're bringing our minds to the resurrection. Because what we find here in Acts 17 is that the resurrection confirms for us that the Father accepted that atonement sacrifice. We come here into the midst of a sermon. Beginning in verse 30, we read this. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Stop there. What does the resurrection do? It gives assurance that Jesus Christ is in fact exactly who he claimed to be. He has, in fact, done exactly what he claimed to be doing. Because by his resurrection, the Father is giving testimony that Jesus is the one who has found favor and acceptance from him. Something similar is said in Romans 1, verse 4. It says that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. You hear what that said? He's not made to be the Son of God by the resurrection. Of the dead eternally. He is the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. The resurrection is the great stamp of approval on everything that Jesus is and did. So his emerging from that tomb on this morning provides us a display, or you could say, a statement from God the Father of validation, complete validation. Now, what about that this morning? Does that, is that relevant to you and to me? Well, let's take a straw poll this morning. How many of us in this room are sinners? You don't have to raise your hand. It's maybe rhetorical. I'll assume for your sake that you're raising your hand, that you've recognized that in yourself. My friends, as sinners, we're just sinners talking here together, right? As sinners, what could be more crucial to us than this? When the Passover lamb was slaughtered, you can even think back to the Old Testament, back to the land of Egypt, and after all of those demonstrations of God's power, after all of those plagues, news has come that on this night, death is going to come to every home in the land, unless in faith a Passover lamb is sacrificed and blood is put over the doorposts. They doubtless, (coughs) they doubtless stayed awake through the night because they could hear the cries, the screams of torment, of torture as death was found in homes. And God's people huddled together in their houses with their families, those who have trusted that this lamb's blood will take away their sin. And they take their breath to see what will happen. Will God accept this substitute and pass over us? Because if he doesn't, if he doesn't accept this substitute, that's it. There is no other that has been given. And come out of Egypt and think about what this picture is describing for us, our need as sinners. If this substitute is not accepted... Eternal torment, rightly deserved, is all that is left. It's all that awaits us. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If Christ was not raised, we are still in our sins. And there's no other sacrifice. It's just game over. So we think on things like the the perfect justice of God. And subsequently, the, the absolute certainty of God's judgment against sin. It's only when we contemplate those realities that we have the framework in place to appreciate the held breath of God's people and thinking about the three-day period where this sacrifice lies in the grave. Will it be accepted? And then Christ walks out of that tomb on a Sunday morning. And our held breath turns into shouts of joy. But it's way more than just a generic moment of happiness. It's in fact the biggest sigh of relief that a sinner could ever breathe. That's what this morning is. It's a shout of relief and joy. And it most certainly is a shout of worship to the triune God. Because this was the divine plan all along. Wasn't it? This is not simply a display of the love of the Son for us. This is a display of the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for his people. Because that Father who accepts the substitute in my place is the Father who sent that substitute in the first place. This was an act of his divine love that arranged for this substitutionary atonement that takes place at the cross. His perfect righteousness for my sin. And this is what Resurrection Sunday is. This is what Easter Sunday is. It's the completion, the the, the telos, the end game of Passover. Easter is the reason we don't celebrate Passover. And in situating Resurrection Sunday into God's plans of redemptive history, then we're seeing that, number one, Christ turned out to be the Passover lamb that has always been pointed to. Secondly, we've seen... that that offering for sin to our everlasting joy and relief was accepted as seen in the resurrection of Christ. But now thirdly, let's, let's think more in terms of after he walks out of the tomb. Thinking in terms of a timeline maybe of redemptive history. We could ask the question, what now? And what we are taught by his apostles In Scripture, is that the risen Christ then stands vindicated as the representative of a people. In other words, Christ stands in that position that he stands in as the head of a new race. He is the vindicated last Adam, as Scripture describes him. And we'll look at a couple of places to see this, but turn to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. This is exactly Paul's intention in this text, is to help us understand the relationship between Jesus and Adam. It's one of the most important relationships to understand, if we're going to read our Bibles correctly. Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. For indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, and yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Listen to this, who was a type of the one who was to come? We're seeing here the reason that 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the last Adam. The two of them have in common the role of representative headship before God. Adam stood in a unique place before God that you do not stand in, and I do not stand in. He represented the race that would come from him. He did so in his person. He did so then in his actions. Verse 14 tells us here that by standing in such a representative role, he was serving as a type of the one who was to come, which is Christ. And what's so helpful about Romans five is the way that it clarifies the lay of the land for us. I mean, in terms of how the human race stands before God. This is not the way that we typically think in our own context, our highly individualized context. We tend to think purely in terms of me and my own actions before God as being determinative. But, you know, even if we started there, the Holy Spirit at work in us shows us some problems, doesn't it? If all it came down to were our actions and our choices, the testimony of God's word would be clear enough. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, the wages of that sin is death. Not a word here in terms of speaking about how I relate to God is breathed about uh, the goal being a life where my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And so that's how this works. God's standard is his own character. And thus his standard is perfection. And there is no human conscience so seared that it never passes through moments of realization that it has sinned against the God who made him. We all know that that is the case. So if it comes down only to our own actions and our choices, our need for rescue before this God who has made us would be clear enough, wouldn't it? I hope that this morning that is abundantly clear to you. But this is why I appreciate Romans 5. It makes it even clearer. Every human who has ever been born has lived under one of two realities. They are either in Adam or they are in Christ. Adam brought death to all whom he represents. Christ, as the last Adam, brings life to all whom he represents. Paul writes a little bit below what we read in verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In Adam, there is no hope, none. There's only judgment, and that rightly so. And I have bad news for us all this morning. It's that anyone in here who has had the misfortune to have a human mother and father, I am sorry, because all who have descended from Adam by natural generation are in Adam from birth. So the question that should be burning in our minds then, that we we should be paying very much attention to this morning, is this one. How does one come to be in Christ? I see what Paul's saying, and I've drawn a conclusion. I don't want to be in Adam as I stand before a holy God. I really don't. But how can I be in Christ? My friends, that's the very same question as this one. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Because to be in Christ is to be connected to Christ. It's to be in union with him and thus receiving the eternal life that only comes from him. And with these questions, as we have gotten now to the heart of what's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when the Bible answers that question for us, you don't find in its answer a list of feats you must accomplish. Receiving an eternal life Inheriting eternal life is not about doing. It is about receiving something that has been done for you. What keeps people away from that is the fact that in order to receive in that way, I have to come to God empty-handed. I have to come to him admitting, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to offer to contribute to my rescue. I am in complete and desperate need for your grace. It's as Paul wrote in Galatians 2.21. If righteousness can come through the keeping of the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What the gospel calls us to then is not a doing, but a believing. An understanding that Christ's righteousness is in fact given to sinners. A believing that God is telling the truth when he has promised us. To cast out no one who draws near to him in the name of his son. And a resting in the knowledge. I mean, banking your life on the knowledge that Christ's death truly is sufficient. It's sufficient to justify the worst of sinners. You put all of that together. All of those confessions together. And this is what local churches are composed of. Not proud, better than you people, but humbled, needy, grateful, relieved people. Relieved because the death of Christ was the death of their guilty stains before the one who is their God. And who is now in Christ their father. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the lives we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And whose gift, whose sacrifice was accepted on our behalf. This is the source of the peace that surpasses understanding. That our Lord promises even to those living in a world like this. And in times like this. Times and places where peace seems a laughable notion. But yet it is promised to his children in his word. Why? Because of this. These truths that we're reflecting on. Regarding our relationship to the father. They also sum up our unity that we have with each other then, too, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it sums up the way that our lives are in a real sense defined by the blood that was shed for us on the cross. And how wonderful then that this is a Sunday we get to share together at the Lord's table because the symbols that we share in represent those exact realities that we've been talking about. We eat and drink together as if acting out a great family celebration at table. And that's what we're doing. As we eat, we remember Jesus' body broken for us. As we drink, we acknowledge Jesus' blood to be the blood that sealed our pardon. But not just our pardon, the blood that sealed our new covenant relationship with Christ forever, and therefore with his people forever. This is what we represent, this is what we look ahead to, and what we remember back to as we come to the Lord's table. And it's because of the seriousness of those things that God's word charges us not to eat or drink lightly. He commands us to be discerning, to be meditative, to discern our place in the body of Christ. That this is an act for Christians, and Christians only to participate in. And for Christians themselves, the Lord's table is a regular chance for us, then, to be evaluating the posture of our lives toward the one who we call Lord. And so it's very fitting, as you're waiting for the elements to be served, you're waiting for us to share in them together, it's fitting that prayer and repentance of known sin or things that would be involved in our own preparations as we come together to share in this. And so our preparation for the Lord's table involves two aspects then. It involves an awareness of our having been individually called by God, rescued by God through the work of his Son, as well as our awareness that we are in union with each other. We are one Individually, and yet we are also one corporately in a meaningful way. Paul describes this very well. We'll end here with this. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Listen to the point that he's making. It's an illustration. It's an analogy. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This reality, we as God's people, live out together at his table. Let me invite the elders who are serving us to come forward at this time.